0: Um, We're going to be reading from Mark, and you can see on the screen, it's on page 713. So Mark 8, verses through to 9, verse 1. I just want to start with the beginning words of that song we sang, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. What an amazing God. And we're going to read about that amazing God now. Jesus feeds the 4,000. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. And they had enough small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, and about 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into a boat, and with his disciples, he went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The Yeast of the Pharisees and Herod The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up then? They answered seven. He said to them, "Do you still not understand the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida?" They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, "Do you see anything?" He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Peter's Confession of Christ. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Jesus answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus predicts his death. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power.
1: It'll probably turn out to be me still, I'm sure. I was telling someone this week about a friend of, um, of mine who'd become a Christian and they seemed to be going really strong in their faith as a Christian. And right from the beginning, this person had been told that following Jesus is hard going at times. And they'd been told very clearly that Jesus never promises that following him is going to be smooth going. Life now is not going to be necessarily easy. But somehow that message just hadn't sunk in. It was like for this person that they thought that the proof that God was worth following would be seen by him making their life smooth now. And so when the first couple of bumps in their life came along after starting to follow Jesus, they were convinced that God had failed them. Now, I'm not, I'm not judging this person. I think I've seen this too many times in too many people to judge them. And I reckon I've seen this danger even in, in my own heart as well. We know it's not meant to be easy following Jesus and we know that God doesn't promise Christians a happy, smooth life. We know that in fact he promises us the opposite and that's that's fine in abstract out there as an idea but when God applies that to my life, when God doesn't seem to have in mind what I think he should have in mind for me, suddenly I can feel betrayed and abandoned. I reckon it's, it's very easy to find ourselves saying to God, God, while ever your concerns align with my concerns, we're a team. But if your concerns don't align with my concerns, then I'm putting you on notice. Now, of course, it's not just in the hard times that our concerns can be clashing with God's concerns. When things are going well, our concerns can still be clashing with his concerns. It's just that in good times, it can be so much harder to know whether we're being led by what God wants or whether we're being led by what we want. What would you say is leading your life right now? Would you say that you're led by what concerns you? Or would you say that you're led by what concerns God? Well, today... Jesus has a warning for his disciples and it's a warning for us as well. And his warning is that our mere human concerns can eclipse God and his concerns for us. And we can easily miss that it's even happening. And this brings us to our first point. We risk missing the magnitude of Jesus if our focus is on mere human concerns. Let's pick this up by jumping in at verse 11. Now for the last little while you might remember Jesus has hardly even been in Galilee and he's finally back here. But the boats barely landed when we read that the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked for a sign from heaven. Now if they're going to give Jesus their endorsement, they want to make sure that he's the real deal. And that sounds fair enough, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't see things that way. Look at how he reacts in in verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Jesus is intensely frustrated with their fence sitting. Their refusal to throw themselves in, it's, it's deeply disappointing to him. And worse. The Pharisees have come to question and to test him. They've come with their checklist of interests and and concerns, which, which they are demanding that Jesus meets. The Pharisees, they think that what really matters is how they judge Jesus. But Jesus refuses to play their game, and instead we see how Jesus judges them. Because even though he's only just disembarked, we read in verse 13, then he left them, got back into the boat, and cross to the other side. He leaves them. And actually, in the rest of this biography, he barely interacts with the Pharisees again. Can you understand why Jesus is so frustrated with them? It's because they're just not listening. Their own concerns and interests are blocking them from seeing what's obvious. If they didn't march down to the boat with their checklist for Jesus, what would they have heard if they'd just stopped and, and listened, what they would have literally heard would have been the people abuzz with the stories of the signs that Jesus has just been doing. How before that they'd got into the boat, Jesus had just fed a crowd of people miraculously for the second time. 5,000 the first time, 4,000 this time, that's 9,000 people talking about what Jesus had just done and this was more than enough of a sign for them, but they refuse to see it. They're holding their own concerns so close up to their eyes that they can't see the truth about Jesus. You know, like the moon can eclipse the sun, even though the sun is, is so much more ginormous than the moon and so much brighter, they're eclipsing the Son of God with their small concerns so that they miss the sheer magnitude of Jesus And in the end, it's because they just don't want to see it. Have you noticed that it's never for lack of science that people refuse to believe in Jesus? Not back then and not today. The signs are there. The the problem is that we want Jesus to comply to our checklist of interests and concerns instead of paying attention to what's clearly on display already. But that's not how things work. You know, I I can't say to the police officer who's who's trying to breathalyze me, I don't care that you're wearing a uniform. I don't care that you're showing me your badge. Show me that you know how to fire that gun just to prove to me that you you really are who you are. Get the police commissioner on the phone to vouch for you. Then I'll believe you. You If I refuse to see the clear signs that are provided in that situation, then I'm going to find myself in trouble. I don't get to dictate the signs. And it's the same with God, even more so. We don't get to dictate the signs. They're already given and it's never for lack of signs that people don't believe. But like the Pharisees, we too today have a remarkable ability to close our eyes to the clear signs that God gives us. We see the universe and we can think, it must have always and forever existed without beginning or end. Somehow it just is. We see the beauty and the complexity of living things in this world and we can think they must have randomly arranged themselves without design, without input from an external creator. We can feel that the strange pressing reality of, of right and wrong and feel the weight of our own conscious conscience and yet we can think it's just social conditioning. Right and wrong in the end is whatever we decide it will be. Or we can hear the words of Jesus unlike any other religious leader, unlike any other human, with such power and authority, and yet with such compassion and insight, and we can think these are just the works of a religious imagination. Or we can see the evidence for the resurrection, the transformation of weak and scared disciples to people who are willing to die for what they saw with their own eyes. We can see Judaism turned on its head completely, or the explosion of the church into existence, even under intense persecution. And we can say, but I want to see a sign. We will never see Jesus' magnitude by demanding a sign like this. It's logically impossible. Because while ever we're pontificating to Jesus how he should prove his worth to us, we're actually demeaning him. We're expecting him to be like a performing monkey for us. We're diminishing him by refusing to actually see the signs that he's already clearly provided. It's never for lack of science that we don't see Jesus' magnitude. It's always because our focus is on mere human concerns. And just like the Pharisees, it's not reasonable. It's inexcusable. And yet, Jesus says, it's a real danger for us all, as we'll see. Look what happens. As they travel away from the Pharisees to the other side of the lake, the disciples realize that they've forgotten to bring bread with them. Maybe it was because they left in such a hurry. But whatever the reason, the disciples are quite concerned about the fact that they've only got one stale loaf with them for lunch. But while their minds are on lunch, Jesus' mind is is still on what's just happened back on the shore. Look here at verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out. For the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Actually, Jesus' mind's not still back on the shore here. His mind is on whether they've left the Pharisees on the shore, but somehow they've brought something of their influence into the boat with them. Like yeast, there's something about the Pharisees and Herod that threatens to infiltrate the minds of Jesus' followers and grow. But what exactly is this yeast? What is it? That's the threat. Well, to figure this out, we have to figure out what on earth does Herod have in common with the Pharisees? You know, the Pharisees, these people who are on about their rules to force religious renewal. Whereas Herod, he's almost the opposite. He seems to flaunt those rules. On the surface, you can't get two types of people who are more dissimilar. All they seem to have in common is that they had started to plot how they might kill Jesus and they're working together despite their differences. But surely Jesus isn't saying here that the yeast his followers need to watch out for is wanting to kill him. Well, we see what this yeast is as we see its influence growing, permeating in the boat. We'll follow it along for a bit before I give you what I reckon it is. We've got two conversations here happening in parallel with one of the parties completely missing what's going on. Now last week I was, I was chatting after church and there was a great example of this kind of conversation. Someone asked me um, how a member of my family was coping with the heat and I said she's been okay in the heat, just lying down on the wooden floor to keep cool at times even. And then they asked if this family member had had a haircut to uh, short to help with the heat And the conversation carried on for a while, but when I said that she's really settled down lately and is a lot less wild and out of control, at that point I got some strange looks. And luckily at this point, the third person in the conversation realised that we weren't actually talking about Kathy, my wife, we were talking about Chestnut, my dog. I'm I'm glad we cleared that up, because it could have been a bit awkward down the track. Because Kathy's still wild, and there's nothing any of us can do about it. The disciples and Jesus, they're having one of these kind of conversations. And it would be funny, except for it's so serious. Jesus is talking to them about the threat, the Pharisees' way of thinking poses to them. But look at what they think is going on in verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. It's like they think that the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Jesus is giving them a real warning about something that that actually threatens to cut them off from him forever. But their urgent, pressing concern instead is lunch. And as they're fussing and bothering about only having one loaf, they're missing what's really going on and they're doing exactly what Jesus is warning them against. It's like in that very moment, they're kneading in the yeast of the Pharisees even as Jesus is warning them not to do it. And so Jesus says in verse 17, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? Does what Jesus is saying here sound familiar? In chapter 4 in the parable of the sower, Jesus said that these are the exact characteristics of those who are on the outside. And now Jesus is asking them, After all this time, after all they've seen of him, are they actually outsiders? Jesus then says to them that their problem is actually forgetfulness in a way, but not because they've forgotten bread, but because they so quickly forget the meanings of the signs that they've just seen. Look at the end of verse 18. Jesus says, And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said, do you still not understand? Now our minds, I think, jump to this being some kind of cryptic puzzle. But Jesus' point is, is actually the opposite. Jesus is saying that the feeding miracles show something extremely obvious. It's not simply that Jesus can take this one loaf and easily give the disciples lunch. That is true and it's obvious, but that's that's not his point. Jesus' point is that these miracles show his magnitude, his significance, and they show it overwhelmingly, abundantly, excessively in fact, and yet, even though the disciples were the very ones collecting those basketfuls of abundance, yet, nonetheless, they are still missing his magnitude. And I think this is where we see the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. The yeast of Herod and the Pharisees that that Jesus is warning them about is putting human concerns above God's concerns putting human concerns above God's concerns so that in the end they miss the magnitude of Jesus. The disciples in this moment, they're so focused on this one little stale loaf that they are eclipsing the very bread of life come down from heaven, standing with them in the boat. And it's not just in this moment that they're doing this. So far in Mark's Gospel, the disciples have proved themselves completely incapable of understanding who Jesus is and what he's on about. And at this point, we've got to start wondering if after two feeding miracles, if after all of they've seen, if they're still blind to Jesus' significance, what is it going to take to open their eyes? And this is answered for us in what happens next. They land and people bring a blind man to Jesus. And he has a go at healing him. And he asked him in verse 23, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. So Jesus has a second go, and then we read in verse 25, Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now what are we to make of this? What's going on here? Is it just that Jesus is having a kind of bad day? It's not that, this is deliberate. This healing is a parable. Jesus has just said to the disciples, Do you have eyes but fail to see? Then they land and Jesus is brought this blind man who has eyes but can't see. And so for the benefit of his disciples and for our benefit, he heals this man in two stages. And in this healing parable, Jesus is saying that only he can open our eyes to see his magnitude. This is our second point. Only Jesus can open our eyes to see his magnitude. The first half of Mark, the whole first half, has been Jesus' first touch on the disciples. And now we reach the central, pivotal part of Mark's biography where finally we get to see the effects of that first touch. Finally we get to see the disciples' opened eyes opened. Look at verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples, Who do people say I am? Here he's finally bringing to the surface the question that he's been preparing his disciples to answer this whole time. And then after hearing their replies in verse 29, he says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? Everything's been building to this moment. And Peter says, You are the Messiah. Now we know way back from the very first verse in Mark that Peter's got this right. Finally they see it. Finally, their eyes have been opened. Jesus' message the whole time has been that the kingdom of God is at hand. And Peter is saying, you, Jesus, you are the king bringing God's kingdom. But there's something inherently dangerous about this label Messiah. It's right, but it's risky. And it's not just that the label could get you killed... Could, Herod and the the Romans don't want a populist king rising up, but it's dangerous for more reasons than that. It's dangerous because of what Jesus has just warned us about. We're very likely to understand the role of the Messiah according to our human concerns rather than according to God's concerns. And that's exactly what we then see Peter do. In verse 31, Jesus begins to explain what it means that he's the Messiah. We read... He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now notice here that Jesus fills in their understanding of who the Messiah is by speaking about the Son of Man from Daniel 7. This is what Daniel said about this mysterious person. He said... is a mysterious figure of enormous, extraordinary power and significance. And Jesus teaches them that that's how they're to understand this Messiah, him as Messiah, coming in his Father's glory, we read just a little bit later in Mark. But they're only to understand him this way as long as they understand that first he's going to have to walk the the path of pain and suffering. That's what God has in mind. But this is not at all what Peter had in mind. And so he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And then listen to what Jesus says to him. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, and no doubt the rest of the disciples here, they're still not seeing Jesus clearly. Clearly. They're seeing Jesus through only partly healed eyes and so they're still getting him horribly wrong. He's like a walking tree to them. Peter still has in mind here human concerns. He pitches a glorious Messiah who conquers without suffering, who marches on to victory with a, a glorious entourage behind him. But Jesus calls for a different kind of entourage. He calls Peter to embark on a different kind of march. And what's really confronting for us here is that up until this point, Jesus has just been teaching the disciples. But now he calls the crowd to hear this next bit. And so there's no way that we can get away from this. Look at what he says in verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this brings us to our final point. Seeing the magnitude of Jesus clearly means giving up the magnitude of self completely. There is no way to get around this. To follow Jesus means unconditionally surrendering, living for ourselves. Following Jesus means that we die to living for ourselves. And it means that we follow Jesus even to our literal death if that's where he takes us. Bonhoeffer puts it very starkly. He says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To some of us, the idea of completely handing over your life to someone else sounds terrifying. To follow someone, even when they may choose to lead you to death, sounds crazy. But for those of us who see the magnitude of Jesus, we see it differently. We see who Jesus is. And we've seen that he's overwhelmingly, abundantly capable of leading us. And we see where he's taking us. Look in verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jim Elliott was a man who got this. He died as a missionary. But years earlier, he he had written in his journal, "He he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, where we lead ourselves will only result, in the end, in eternal death. But Jesus leads us to life that can't be lost, that's eternal. There's no doubt. In my mind, there's no doubt, I think, in anyone's mind, that the Christian life is radical. If we're seeing it right, that's the only way we can see it. But it's also beautiful. We are those who have already died to self, which means we live right now not for ourselves, not for our own concerns, but for Jesus Paul says this so beautifully in prison, in Rome, when he's facing execution, the possibility of execution. He says in, in Philippians one twenty one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's why he can ask them to pray that he might have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Is that our prayer? Part of our mission at T and E is to be a people who are loving God as we trust, obey, and glorify Jesus with all of our lives. But we could put this another way. We want to be a people who lose our lives for Jesus and for the gospel. Is that what we want? This is not about wanting to die. This is about seeing clearly where true life is found and not wanting anything else to eclipse our view of him. And this is not about finding the strength of vision within ourselves. This is about Jesus opening our eyes to see his greatness. We're not called to march up front into hard times proudly in our own strength. We're just called to take each faltering step behind Jesus one at a time following wherever it is that he leads us. But to keep doing this, we do need to keep heeding Jesus' warning. We need to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. We need to watch out that we don't elevate mere human concerns, whatever they might be for us, so that they eclipse who it is that we're following. So as we finish, how is it that we do that? Well, we do what the disciples were failing to do. We remember. We remember that it's Jesus alone who can open our eyes to see his magnitude, first of all. We remember the past work of Jesus in our lives. You know, has Jesus ever left you or failed you? Through hard times, has he ever been unfaithful? Hasn't it been the case that when you've looked back, when you've come through those hard times, that you can look back and see that his hand has been at work? Painfully, maybe, but lovingly. This has always been the case for me. When my mum died when I was 20, when Evie was born three months premature, when I found myself needing to quit my job without something else to go to, when I faced chronic and could hardly stand up for months on end, when I look back and I, and I properly remember God has always been faithful to me, and especially so through those hard times, but far, far more powerful than even these kinds of memories, we must remember exactly what Jesus is marching to here. Jesus marches to his death, laying aside his own concerns so that he can take up ours. We remember that Jesus here is calling his friends to follow him, knowing that they're not going to, that he's going to die alone and they're going to betray him and desert him. We remember just what it cost Jesus to give us the second touch, to open our eyes, that it took his death in our place. But we also remember why he gave his life. He gave it so that our life could be saved so that finally he could raise up a people who will see his magnitude forever, a people who will gain life. And then, finally, we need to remember that having seen Jesus' greatness, we've given up our very lives already to follow him. We've died to self already. We've died to living for our concerns way back. When we started following him. Which means that everything in our lives is now directed to his service. The job we take. The person we marry. The house we buy. Where we live. How we spend our money. What we want for our kids. What we say to our non-Christian friends. How we express our sexuality. How we spend our time. All of it. We've already decided. When we decided to follow Jesus. That these and all things are going to fall in line behind him and behind his gospel? Are they? Are they doing that in your life? Are they falling behind Jesus? Or are we letting them eclipse his magnitude? Let me pray for us. Lord, when we properly see Jesus... The bread of life come down to give up his life so that we might live eternally. Lord, we are filled with awe and wonder at your magnitude. At his magnitude, God the Son, humbling himself on our behalf. And yet, Lord, it is true, Jesus' warning is so true in our lives that there are so many human concerns that eclipse his magnitude things that are nothing compared to him, good things that he's created and given given us and yet we let them block our vision of him. Lord, we're sorry for this and we ask that by Jesus you would open our eyes, help us to see so clearly his magnitude that we would push aside every other concern that would stand against what he would want. Lord, as a church and as individuals, Help us to be people who take up our cross and gladly follow Jesus, knowing that his love and his lead will win us eternal life, whereas our lead is not what we need and will march us to our death. Lord, we thank you for the king that he is, willing to suffer and die. Lord, help us to see this always before us and to follow him. And we pray in his name. Amen.